kind of interesting what we're going to be studying this evening. Uh, imagine if you were going to go and sit in one of your classes, whether it be at Bible college or whether it be at the university, and you're sitting in a mathematics class, and um, you ask your teacher a question, and like, what do you think about this problem? And your teacher said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really that good at that problem. All right. So you went into your history class, and you talked to your teacher, and you said, you know, I was curious about this date back in the 1800s, and um, have you studied that, or do you, are you familiar with this? I got some questions for you. And the history teacher's like, uh, well, you know, I, I really, not really that good at history. What? Like, you expect when you go to a class that your teacher has something to give you. And I want to make one thing clear tonight is that this isn't a class, and uh, I'm not the teacher, and what we're going to be talking about, I am no good at. Um, You're like, okay, what are you doing up there talking then? Um, That's the point, is that if you came here to, to hear, like, my ideas or my opinions, I hope you don't hear anything at all. Uh, Lord, I pray that everything that I say would be tempered by God's word and not by my own opinions. I've heard opinions all week. I want to know what God says. Um, We're going to be talking about humility tonight, which um, which is really hard right now because there is a lot of people in here and uh, you think, well, surely the guy up front knows something about being humble since he's teaching on it. And humili- or pride is so prevalent. Right now, in my flesh, I could really think that I'm something. But the truth is, is man, this, what we're going to look at tonight, man, I wrestle with it every day. I... Before I came here, I'm, Lord, help me hold my, forgive me of my pride. Help me to be humble. So, um, I'm not necessarily the example, but uh, what we'll look at at Scripture will be Christ. Um, Last week we looked at Jesus Christ, and Tanner set up a great platform for us to study from this evening. Christ is high. He is lifted up. He is most excellent. He is majestic. He is the crown of Scripture. He is the story of the gospel. His aim is God's glory. And he is not just explained in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it starts in Genesis. He is creator. Revelations, he is the judge. And the whole way through Scripture, Christ is woven in. Like, if you don't get that about, if you think the Bible is a whole bunch of stories, it's one story. It's like that Russian doll. It's, 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 you keep, there's a lot of books to it, but it's, it's about Jesus Christ, his gospel. So, um, we picked a verse, 1 John 2, 6. If you claim that you're a Christian, then you ought to walk as he walked. And I know a lot of us in here claim to be Christians. Okay, let me ask you this. Are you walking as Christ walked, like we see in Scripture? So what we're going to be doing this semester is we're going to start with 
tonight, the birth of Christ, the Christmas story. We're going to work our whole way, th- the whole way through. And if it takes two years, that's okay. You guys need a four-year degree anyways. We've got time. But we're going to just focus on the Christmas story this evening. So, um, you know, I think it, uh, I'd really like to pray with you before we begin. And uh, pray that the Lord, that you would hear the Lord's words and not my own. And pray for my own heart that I would be humbled before the Lord against the temptation to, be, to think that I'm something right now. So, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there is a temptation of being full of myself is standing at the door. And it is standing in the hearts of every single person sitting here. Lord, we are, we are very prideful, as we will see, in comparison to you. So, Lord, give us, at least, Lord, bless us with the grace of humility that we can listen to your word this evening. Help us not to be stiff-necked as we open up your word now and look at your son. Amen. Um, usually you study uh, Luke 2 and Matthew 1 right around December, but uh, it's not just for December. Christmas story is more than just December. Um, let me ask you a question. If you could write your ticket, if you could have it however you wanted to have it, um, where you were born, what you, what, what you would do after school, where you went to school, who you would marry, what kind of... I wonder what you would choose. Like if you were sovereign, and someone always asks you the question, like if you had a million dollars, what would you do? And um, as we look at the life of Christ, man, I see... It is so, it's such a testimony that God's word was not inspired by men. Because it has not, it's not the way that we would have written it. it. It surely is not the way I would have written it. If I was to send my son to some place, I would have set him up. Especially if I had the power to do it. We're going to see something a little different in the Gospels. Um, 1 John 2.6, if we claim to abide in him, we also ought to walk as he walked. There's another way to say that. It's in Philippians 2. Um, I think Taylor read it this evening. And we're, we're going to also look at uh, a couple of, um, as we look at humility, this will be another one of our focus verses this evening. So we're going to read this, kind of tuck it away. You can keep your finger in it. Ephesians 2.5. Compare this to 1 John 2. Let this mind be in you. Have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's how he walked. Who being in the form of God. We're going to look at that. What does that mean? Did not consider it robbery. Some of you, what does some other versions say? Something to be grasped with some other ones? Equality. To be equal with God, but made himself. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Verse 5, let this mind be, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Um. 
put your fingers in Matthew 1 and Luke 2. We're going to kind of be going back and forth in there a lot tonight. And if you don't, I think it's on the screen behind me. So you don't have to. But uh, what was the first miracle of Jesus on this earth? If you know, just kind of yell it out to me. Water into wine. Let's read first Matthew 1.18. The first miracle of Jesus on the earth. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, seeing being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. The virgin birth. The fir- really, if you think about it, I was just kind of considering this today. That was really Jesus' first miracle. If you, and if, if he was virgin birth, then you've got to reckon with who in the world is he? This is God. If he wasn't, like C.S. Lewis said, that's right, liar, lunatic, or Lord. Um, Matthew, Matthew's a Jew. He wrote this. You've got to ask yourself, why is that significant? If you were a Jew and you were making up a story, you would not have wrote in your story something that would be an abomination. You would have not wrote down um, Jesus and his mother was uh, impregnated, was, was uh, God, uh, the Holy Spirit, put Jesus in, and you wouldn't have done that because towards men, it would have looked like something Mary was a lady who did not have any reputation. Like right there, you got to start off with the virgin birth and say, wow, God, I wouldn't have written it that way. Um, this was a disgrace. It was a scandal. It was socially, you would be an outcast. If you were caught with a baby out of wedlock, what was the punishment? Do you know what it was? You could have been stoned. But this is what Matthew records. Um, this was the reputation that Jesus was born into. I wonder, I wonder what the neighbors thought. Did you ever think about that? I wonder if they started like doing the math because they knew that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. So really they were just engaged. And that lasted for a year. And wait a second, she's pregnant. So I know it's a nine-month period. Huh. But that was the, the reputation that God inspired into history, and, it was, and it's in Matthew's gospel. If you were a Jew, you'd have covered that one up. It's not how you would have written it. The next thing, the birthplace of Jesus. Let's go to Luke 2. When we, um, I have two boys, and uh, we moved here. When we first made our decision to move here, my wife got pregnant. And I remember the first thing that entered in my mind was, oh, no, if I quit my job and go to school, I'm going to lose insurance. Where in the world are my kids going to be born? That's like 10 grand. It's a lot of money. Kids are expensive. Um, 
And when we came here, we looked into the hospitals, we checked out all the options. Like, it's a big thing. Where, where, where would you have, if you sovereignly could choose where your son or daughter would be born, where would you choose? Where did God choose? Let's, um, Luke 2, 1 through 7. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This could have been either for the point of being taxed or for the point for military. The census first took place while Cornelius was governing Syria. So all went to, the, to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of Nazareth, and into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was the house and lineage of David. You've heard this story every Christmas. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for, for them in the inn. And I'm picturing Mary. And we traveled from Maryland to Montana. It was like 2,300 miles, and my wife was pregnant. And I had this 1992 Dodge. And um, if you hit a, a hard bump, like your head would hit the ceiling. And uh, like I wouldn't have chosen it that way if I could have. But then you have Joseph and Mary who have to travel 70 miles from where they were from in Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Mary, it says she is great with child on a donkey. Like if I, would, is that what you would choose if you were sovereign and you could, you could write your ticket to have your son? And then where, where's um, the, the welcoming party, the hospital? There's no room for you. There's no room for, there was no room for him, and no room for God. Couldn't God have been a better planner? Everything was filled up. If they were there a couple days earlier and the city wasn't so bustling with people, maybe there would have been a room. That's not what God sovereignly decided. So they go to the innkeeper. He says, I've got no rooms in the inn, but out back there's a stable, which is our nice word probably for a cave. And it was uh, pretty much a livery where you keep your donkey, your horse. You come into town, you register keep him in the livery, the cave, that's where Jesus was born. Man, I remember, like, when you go to Bozeman Deaconess, like, it's clean. The nurses, they, they're like the best nurses. They take care of you, and they, like, they even hook Dad up with free meals the first time. The second time, they don't. <laughs> Once you get your foot in the door, it's over. They take care of you. But, not, but, but Christ... Comes in, no room. They wrapped him in strips of cloth, which was a, they'd wrap him up real tight, and they still kind of do that. And they believed that um, that would kind of strengthen, keep him tight, strengthen their arms. And uh, there was no room for him. That's not how I would have written it. Not how I would have done it. What's next? Why Bethlehem? Not Jerusalem. Do you ever wonder about that? Think about Jerusalem. What was in Jerusalem? The temple. If you're a Jew, you know where you would have wanted to be born? What an honor it would be to be born in Jerusalem. 
And if you went up the hill to Jerusalem and you looked at from every vantage point, you would have seen Herod's temple that he had built. It was huge, magnificent. Had a huge um, platform up front, up top, where they would, um, you would go into the Holy of Holies. The priests would offer sacrifices for the people. Like, it was magnificent. Uh, I forget how many years that it had already been being built, and it was not completed yet. It was, it was amazing. Like, wouldn't you have thought that that's where Jesus would have been born? Maybe right in the temple? Wouldn't that be awesome? The Messiah in the temple at Jerusalem, not Bethlehem? That's what the wise men thought. Remember the wise men? They see the stars, they come, and where do they go? Straight to Jerusalem. That just makes sense. When Messiah is born, he's got to be at this, this place of, of worship. But that's not what God chose. Again, he chose what we did not expect. He chose Bethlehem. Why? In Micah 5.2, way before, he says, uh, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. That's an interesting verse. Whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. The first call... When we, had, uh, when we had our son, Rhett, I remember it was like um, that morning I was sitting out in the lawn and I remember like looking at all my names in my contact list and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call my dad. I'm going to call my dad, I'm going to call Jen's parents and uh, their first question is like, and I know a lot of you are like, you're going to be there really soon. It's so, you, it's so exciting to be like, it's a boy or it's a girl, it was a boy. And... Um, to tell people the good news. Who would you call if it was your... Who would you call? Who did Jesus... Who did God call? This is interesting. Luke 2. Luke 2, 8 through 12. This is God's first, first call to proclaim His Son is born. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an en- an angel of the Lord stood before them, and, they, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Man, that's really interesting that God chose the first... The, he even sent angels out to shepherds, not a king, not nobles, not even a high priest. He, he chose shepherds. I found this in a, in, a, in a commentary. It says, shepherds were near the bottom of the social ladder. They were uneducated, unskilled, increasingly viewed in the New Testament as dishonest, unreliable, and unsavory characters, so much so that they were not allowed to testify in court. Because sheep require seven days a week care, shepherds were not fully able to comply with the man-made Sabbath regulations. And if they couldn't go to the temple and get their sins forgiven, they lived in continual sin. God chose shepherds. God chose shepherds to go and, 
angels, I want you to go and tell those shepherds. Isn't that neat that God's first phone call, if you will, was to shepherds to announce the birth of the great shepherd who, would, who, who had just came? That's not how I would have done it. I would have, I would have chosen somebody reputable, the high priest, a king. Go, go tell Herod. That's a bad idea. Okay, um, next. The next thing, Herod is told. The wise men slip up. They go to Herod. Where's this king? He's like, what king? I'm the king. And then they look into scripture. They find Micah. It says about Bethlehem. So they go over to Bethlehem, and Herod does something that's crazy. Starts killing, killing kids to try to hit or miss, try to find this person who might take advantage of his throne. Jesus is on the run. And I wouldn't have chose that for my son if I was sovereign, that, that my son would have to run from the king. Next thing is uh, his reputation. He was Matthew 2.23, and he came and dwelt in the city of Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And uh, a couple things, I, if you were in a church here last Sunday, somebody asked this question. It's a great question. It says that he shall be called, as the prophet said, a Nazarene, but Nazareth is not found anywhere else in Scripture. Like, what does that mean? Why is he called a Nazarene if it's not mentioned? But if you look through Scripture, what the prophets do say about Christ is that he would be of no reputation. He would be lowly. That's what Nazareth was. If you were from Nazareth, your reputation was you were rough around the edges. You were a little bit low down. You were kind of a crude person. That's where, that's where Jesus was from. Um, it was a nice place to live, but it had a, it had a bad reputation. Why, was one of the, why, why? One of the reasons is because it wasn't even in Scripture. Like It didn't have a reputation because even the prophets didn't even mention its name. You get this when um, the disciples just meet Jesus. And one of the, one of the disciples uh, goes to Nathaniel in John 1.46, and he says, you've got to meet this man. We've met the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, what? Is there anything good at all that can come from Nazareth? You get it again later on when the high priests are talking, and um, they're, ta- they're kind of like weighing what Jesus said, and uh, Nicodemus mentions, shouldn't we at least hear this man? And the high priest says, you're from Nazareth, right? Which is kind of like uh, being sarcastic. Is anything good come from there? Have you seen any prophets? See, Nazareth was, a, was an unlikely place. I, I wouldn't have chosen Nazareth. It was kind of like being on the other side of the tracks. Like, but that's where Jesus was from. His parents, if you look in um, Luke 2.22 2, through 2.24, when they, um, they dedicate him, it's interesting, uh, when, when he's 12 years old, they dedicate the firstborn son. What they use is, um, it shows their class. They were lower to middle class. If they had money, it would have been a lamb. And, and that's what I'd want to represent my son with. I'm dedicating my son to the Lord, and I'm going to lay it down, and I'm going to, here's a ram, or a lamb. And I'm going I'm to, it's big time. But Mary and Joseph, they didn't have that much money. It was, um, 
what was a pigeon and two sparrows? If you were poorer than that, you'd, you'd have maybe a little bit of grain. But they weren't people of influence. They didn't have, like, great means. And if you could write your ticket, wouldn't you have, have given them more money or something? Or wouldn't? That's not what God, that's not how God designed it. Um, here's a question for you. Well, let's go to uh, Luke 2.49. Continuing to look at Jesus. Luke 2.49, Jesus is 12 years old. He's been dedicated. His family's going home. They're on the way home and they realize Jesus isn't with them. After a search, they find him in the temple, learning from the, the, the teachers and the scribes in the temple And 2.49 says, And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Jesus says, Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God. Do you ever wonder about the period? Like we know a little bit about Jesus' birth. And then we go, and all of a sudden he's 30, and he's miracle at Canaan, and th- those three years. But that big time frame, what was going on in the life of Christ? He was subject to his parents. Does that ever, Think about that. God, Jesus Christ, he put himself under human parents that weren't perfect. Think about how hard that would be to be the brother of, and Jesus had brothers. Of a, and every he had his memory was perfect. He never told a lie. Think how hard that would be to be his mom or his dad. But yet Jesus put he put himself in subjection to his parents. The next statement is that uh, he increased in wisdom. That word increased. It means that he drove forward um, the same word you would use by driving an ox forward. Like, you, you have to push hard. Jesus was a worker. He, think about this. Jesus worked at learning, and he worked hard. That is a mystery. God learned. Just let that thing sink in. He, incre- he increased. He grew. He grew in favor with God and with men. If I was God, I wouldn't have limited my son. He would have came to earth, and he would have been like, he would have, as an infant, he would have known everything. There would be no growing because he would have already had the knowing. You know, he would have known everything. You know what I'm saying? But that's not how God let Jesus live. He had to grow. He had to work hard. He had character. What do you think Jesus looked like? Did you ever wonder about this? God is sovereign creator. Sovereignly designed the body that his son 
would occupy on this earth. He could choose any form, any, any way to look. What do you think he looked like? A lot of times we see like the movies, like he looks kind of stunning, piercing, flowing hair, handsome. Like that's how I picture Jesus. But that's not what Scripture says about him. Let's go to, um, I'll just read it to you. This is from Isaiah 53. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. This is talking about Christ. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. What does that mean? It means there was nothing majestic about him. There was nothing of great excellence when you saw him coming. There was no beauty that we should desire him. Like you think of like a stunning, handsome. No, God said there was nothing beautiful that when you looked at him, you thought, this guy, who is this guy? In the flesh, there was nothing that stood out. He was very normal. He, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And get this, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You know, I think a lot of times the way that Jesus... If he were walking on this earth now, in the flesh, and I, you know that guy when you, that you see at school or you see um, the shopping center or wherever, and you kind of avoid them because you don't want to be associated with them because maybe they're, they're not as cool as you. Or if, you if you hang out with them, they're going to take you down with your, your reputation. That's probably what Jesus looked like. Like you probably, and I imagine the Pharisees looking at Jesus, and they see a man who was just, he's, I mean, look at him. He's not that beautiful. He's not that majestic. And all of these people love him and are following him. It must have really irked them. Because what Jesus had was not of the flesh. It was because he followed after the Spirit. But so many times we look on people's faces instead of looking at their heart. What is Jesus' life marked by? His birth, his life, his death are totally saturated with the aroma of humility. Totally. From everything that God sovereignly designed his son is just reeks of humility. He who says he abides in him ought to walk just as he walked. Say that with me. He who says he abides in him ought to walk just as he walked. We're going to memorize that by the end of these couple years. Here's another way to say it. Philippians 2. I don't have, have it right with me. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, look at what we're reading. See Christ's humility. You've got to ask yourself a question. How am I doing? Am I walking like Christ? Um, the problem is pride. And a lot, I think a lot of times we think that 
in our own life, there's a certain amount of pride that's good. Who you're associated with, what you look like, you believe in yourself, you know, you're, you're a strong, you're independent. And we think, you know, a certain amount of pride is healthy. Um, I want to look at pride and show you what it means so that maybe you have a um, better acquainted with yourself. So that, that maybe you, you look at the pride in your life and you, you, you ask for forgiveness. Um, in First Timothy 3.6, Paul is telling uh, Timothy, I want the elders to look like this. And he says, I don't want them to be a novice. I don't want them to be a person who is untrained. Because if they get swelled up with pride, they will fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And that word pride, that word swelled up, if you look at the, the, uh, the original language, it's got a great picture to it. Um, oh, Tanner, I totally forgot. I'll show you what pride is. This is exactly what the word means. Hey, here I come, everybody. It means to throw up clouds of smoke. How many times... How many times do... uh, Do I have powder all over my face? That's okay. Think about that. How many times have you done something so that people see you coming? What you say, what you wear, you want to look good, so that when people see you coming from afar, they're like, here comes Andy. Look at him. Mr. Idiot with the powder. That's what pride does. It calls attention to me. How many times have you said something and you think, man, I hope they heard that. You're just putting up smoke. That's what pride is. Next sentence, and he will fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Man, that's intense. Another word for pride. 1 John 2.15, the pride of life to trust in the world, to think that I'm okay. I've got a degree. I've got a plan. I've got a scholarship. I'm going to be just fine. God says that is, that's prideful. You don't even know what tomorrow brings. You can't even control your next heartbeat. To trust in the world and the things that it, is, that it provides is empty. Let's look at another meeting. Um, Proverbs 16.8. Anybody know this by, by heart? Proverbs 16.8. Pride goes... Yes. Pride goes before a fall and... Haughty spirit before destruction. The word there for pride, you could say it means arrogance. Prideful. But get this. It also means... Same word. Majesty. Excellence, exaltation, pride, this, pride goes before a fall. If you think of yourself as excellent, 
that you deserve exaltation. The Bible says pride goes before a fall. This is really interesting. The next word, or the same word, is used of God in Isaiah 2.10. Enter into the rock and the terror of the Lord before the splendor of God's majesty. You see, this word, this position, it's excellence. It's God's word. And when we take the, um, the characteristic of, yeah, I am excellent too, God. I am majestic too. I am worthy of exaltation, God says. No, that is, that's my realm. You don't get that. Pride goes before a fall. Um, these are mine, says God. You don't describe yourself as that. But man, I see people acting like this, and I act like this. Maybe in very small ways, but I, I see myself as very important. A lot, and God says, no, you're not that important. What's important about you, Andy, is not Andy, it's Christ in Andy. If there's anything important. Let's look at Philippians 2, 6, and 7. With those two thoughts in mind, Okay, we'll start with five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. That word form of God means that he was deity. When Christ came to the earth, he was all God. It wasn't like half. He was all God, but he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? What it means is that God didn't strip away Christ's majesty. Because before he was on the earth, Christ was majestic. He was creator. He was glorious. And he didn't consider it robbery. He gave it up. Although he was still all God, the majesty and glory that God says is mine, Christ gave it up. He freely laid it aside. He humbled himself to the point where he had to learn. He humbled himself to the point where he submitted to earthly parents that were not perfect. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And if you don't understand that, I love this verse. Talk to me afterwards more about this verse. We could, we could chit-chat. But Christ is all God, and he put on the cloak of humanity, humbled himself, that's awesome. Christ's life reeks of humility. Um, what is pride? Stuart Scott, I'm reading a book that I'd like to talk to you about later. He, he said, uh, when someone is proud, he or she is focused on self. This is a form of self-worship. They are believing that all things should be from them and through them and to them and for them. Pride is when we try to climb up on the throne of God and say, I think I'll sit here too. Another man, Thomas Watson, said, Pride seeks to unguide God. Pride seeks to unguide God and put ourselves in that place. Amy Carmichael, this is a good quote. Those who think too much of themselves, 
don't think enough. And then, final quote, Charles Swindoll said, the world's smallest package is a man wrapped up in himself. When we exhibit pride, what we are doing is we're saying, hey, I deserve some majesty too. I deserve to be a little sovereign over my life too. And I don't really care what God has to say. We try to un-God God. Um, our culture, if you look at our culture, pride has become a virtue to become independent, to become that lone type figure that nobody tells you what to do. Why? Because you're majestic. Nobody tells you where to go. Why? Because who deserves the right to tell you what to do? Why should I obey the speed limit? I can drive responsibly. I, I'm a responsible person. I mean, pride just, it ekes our, it, its way into every aspect of our life. And when God sit, sovereignly tells us to do something, we say, God, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to tell me what to do with my life? I, I know your word says it, but that's ah, not the way I see it. That's just us ungodding God in our pride. Very foolish and blind. Very foolish. Um, I'd like to look at some, I, I guess, some examples in my own life. Uh, one time me and my friend were talking about, we were evaluating our conversations. We realized that how many times do I say something or does, do you say something? And the root motivation is because we wanted somebody to hear that we said that. Isn't that how it is? Like, hey, good job, Rick. In my heart, I just said, I'm glad Rick just heard that I said him, tell him a good job. Because I want Rick to think a lot of Andy, because I think a lot of Andy too. Or, man, I really appreciated what you said. What I'm saying in my heart is, I want him to think that I'm a really thoughtful person. Because I think I'm a thoughtful person. In fact, I think I'm the most thoughtful person there is. So, good job. Appreciate you. I hope you know that I appreciate you and that I'm appreciative. Isn't that how... We, but do you ever motivate your... Th- to, to look at your own thoughts and say, man, I am so prideful. It is so hard for me to say something humbly and to compliment somebody because I want you to hear it. That's just my heart. Um, another, another way I wrestle with... With pride. And pride, a lot of times we think of pride as pushing yourself to the front. Pride's got two faces to it. One of my biggest fears, especially when I was younger, was just the fear of man. Speaking. Being in front of people. I was scared to death of it. And in my mind, you know what I was thinking? It's because I'm very humble. It's because um, I'm meek. And I think meek's a good character characteristic to have as a Christian. So I came out to Montana, and uh, this is something I want to work with. I I don't want to always be a a person who's fearful of man. I want to fear God and not men. So I'm evaluating with with the help of some other brothers, like, why am I so fearful? It's pride. Here's why. I think so much of myself that what if, what if I were to get up tonight and do something stupid, like throw powder in the air, and it would get in my eye, 
And you guys would say, what an idiot. And then I would look dumb in front of you. So what I would do to protect myself is I'll just say I can't make it. I'm, I'm busy. So I started lying. You see how one thing leads to another? Pride says, Andy, you better protect yourself. What if they make fun of you? Okay, um, I'm really busy. So I, and I was lazy. Pride just man, starts manifesting itself in other ways. So the Lord, through, and through his grace, that's something that I've been able to, to wrestle with and work with. So here, and I'll let you in on, my, on a part of my prayer life. On the way to cross life, I'm like, Lord, please help me not to be so prideful that I'm scared of these people. That I say something, help me to fear you, Lord. Help me to, to speak truth. Help me to be bold. Help me not to be quiet. Okay? You know what I pray the whole way home? Help me not to think I'm so good. Help me not to think that, man, you really nailed it tonight, Andy. Good job. Isn't that how we act? Like, God gives us help, and the whole way home we're like, yeah, right on, Andy. It, it's pride working. It's, it's both sides of us. That's how it is in our lives. That's just kind of me being open with you. Um, I'm reading this book right now that I'd like to share with you. Uh, I have two books here that have been really a blessing. Um, this one... It's really short. It's called From Pride to Humility. I'm going to share some excerpts out of it tonight. Another book uh, is Humility, True Greatness by C.J. Mahaney. A lot of the things that I'm learning in here and I'm speaking to you are stuff that I found in, in God's Word and stuff that these men have pointed out in God's Word too. Um, what I want to do is he has a whole list of manifestations of pride in a person's life. I'm just gonna re- I, I picked the top ten, and I wanted to read them to you. And just listen to, to what they say. And keep this in the back of your mind. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination. Disgusting. That's what the word means. And guys, honestly, as a Christian, the last thing I want to be to my, to my Savior is Disgusting. Like, I don't want my pride to be repulsive to my Lord. James 4, 6 says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we are, pri- when we are prideful, the word resists mean, it means to set up and p- battle against you. When we are full of pride, God raises up the walls and says, I'm going to resist you. You're not walking forward. You're not, I'm not going to let, allow you to keep going when you, demand, when you are demanding a position that is mine alone to have. God resists the, pr- the proud. The first man of manifestation that Stuart Scott says is anger. Anger is rooted in pride. Why? Because somebody has violated my rights. Somebody has or my rights have not been met. I'm angry about it. Another word, another word for it is moody. Are you moody? I get moody. I feel like nobody appreciates me. I go home and wrestle with the kids, and they never say thank you. Don't they know how much it's just pride? 
having an inflated view of your importance, gifts, and abilities. Another way to say it is, is you think you're a legend in your own mind. If I could listen to your thoughts, wouldn't that be embarrassing? Because I had these conversations in my head, and I'm like, man, yeah. And then I said that, and then he responded, whoa, really, Andy? I was like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) But isn't that how it is in our head? At least guys do. This, I'm a legend in my own mind. The truth is, is it's only in your own mind. And then there's the opposite. It's the flip side. Being focused on your lack of gifts and abilities. This is the focus that is, woe is me. You see, one focus is mirrors. We love mirrors. We love to flex in front of mirrors, guys. We love to be like, man, you're really something. Right? You look at the mirrors. They're everywhere. That's pride. And then the other one is, is you look in the mirror and you're like, God, why'd you make me like that? Why in the world did you have to, to whatever? Why couldn't I look like this, Lord? It's just manifestations of pride on two different sides. Another manifestation, talking too much or too much about yourself. Proud people talk a lot because they believe what they have to say is of the utmost importance. How's your conversation? You talk a lot? Or are you a listener? Being consumed by what others think. So much so that you make decisions based on what others think rather than what God thinks. Man, this is, this is hard when you're in class and you're sitting there with 200 people and the teacher says something that you know is not according to what you believe as a Christian And you start to fear man rather than fearing God. It's rooted in pride. Being sarcastic. I grew up, I I lived with uh, four guys, man, and sarcasm was just prevalent. We were always cutting on each other. And really, we're being hurtful or degrading. Why is that prideful? Because it builds you up at somebody else's expense. Did you ever do that? Yeah, whatever. (laughs) These little comments we make, Somebody says something, and you'd be like, yeah, right, whatever. And we all have our own little, like, things that we say, but we do it to build me up, because I'm majestic, above you. And I'm going to make fun of you, because it's my right. Another Another manifestation of pride, a lack of prayer. Why is that? Because, God, frankly, I don't need you. When we pray... We are demonstrating, Lord, I need you. If you're not a person who prays, it's because you're wrestling with pride. Apparently, you don't need the Lord. Resisting authority. Parents. Who put your parents in place? God did. Authorities. Who put all authority in place? God did. And when we resist them, No, God, not this authority. I think I know better this time. Another manifestation of pride. Using others, seeing people as a means for yourself rather than serving others. When I first came out here, I needed a job. And I remember I really wrestled with talking to a person. And uh, if I heard that they were hiring or they had like some sort of 
something that, uh, like a job, being really nice to them because I started seeing them as a means to myself. Don't we do that? We see people as like, uh, if I got to know this guy, yeah. Or if I knew her, I could really boost myself up. That's what we do. We use others instead of serving others. Like it's not our natural mind to go and say, I wonder how I could serve that person. I wonder how I could encourage that person. Um, The last one is not having close relationships. You're fine. You're fine by yourself. You don't need anybody. You don't need anybody. I talked to a young man today, and I was praising the Lord afterwards because I saw humility in his life. He said to me, and, and I, I hesitate to say this because um, I don't want to make him prideful. He said, I'd like to talk to, uh, I'd like to just be able to, to talk to some other guys so that, uh, let me, I'll just, it's a very humbling thing to go to a person and say, um, can we, can I open up to you? Because in our, in our pride, we think we're fine. Having close relationships. Um, and then from uh, this book, Humility, I don't want to just like come here and like pound you with like, here's pride, here's pride, here's pride. But I also wanted to give you uh, some steps towards humility, some practical ways that you can start to evaluate your own life and work towards humility like Christ demonstrated it. The first one that C.J. Mahaney says is uh, mornings. What's the first thing you do in the morning? You roll out of bed and hit the books, roll out of bed and go to practice. A way to practice being humble will be the first thing you do in the morning is go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. I, I need you today. Please protect me. I'm not okay by myself. I'm weak. Lord, help me to be bold. The first thing we do is to lay ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. In our pride, we say we're fine. But if you want to start being humble, we need to start demonstrating that we need to depend on the Lord. The second thing is um, spiritual disciplines. Praying. If we're not not a person who's praying, we're demonstrating that we don't need God. If we're not a person who is reading the Word, we don't need to hear what He says. If we're not a person who's spending silence before the Lord, we're too busy. One of the first things we could do in the morning to start demonstrating and practicing humility is that the things of the Lord are the first things on your mind so that they saturate your whole day. Um, I wrote down another one. Uh, I learned this from a professor. Thank God for the flubs. And uh, I thought this was, uh, I thought it was insightful. But um, he said, you know, every once in a while, I'm in class and I'll say something stupid. And he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm much older than the students. And they, they look at me and they're like, whatever. And I feel that sometimes too. People look at you and they're like, whatever. Like, thank the Lord for those times because they're very humbling. And when God humbles you, 
He's making you Christ-like. So when you do something stupid or you, you trip or you, you say something and people laugh at you, be like, just quietly, thank you, Lord. I think about this when, especially with like guys who are up front playing the guitar and they start off in the wrong key or the, the mic squeaks and the sound, everybody looks at the sound men. And in my heart, I'm thinking, you know, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be humbled because we need that. Thank God for the flubs. Um, consider God's holiness. We talked about God is preeminent last week. James 4.10 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. If there is one thing that should cause you to be humble, it's to remember that you are in the sight of God. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Do you realize that everything you do, every thought you have, every action you take, it's not a secret? Like that should, like it is before a God who hates sin. It is before a holy God who cannot stand the presence of darkness. Humble yourself because you are in the sight of God all the time. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Your pride that's in your heart, it's not your own little secret. It's, it's before the Lord. That should humble you. Um, sometimes, do you ever hate your memory? With the things like, Lord, why did I do that? In my flesh, I really do hate my memory. Remembering. I th- redeem your memory. Thank the Lord that he, those memories that are in your head, that you are saved from them. That's not the person through God's grace that you are. Like when I think of like, uh, the, the sins, in my, I'm like, Lord, I am, I am so worthy of you to crush me. I am a sinner before you. My memory stands up and testifies against me. That should humble you. It's only because of God's grace that you're not that person and worse. Um, Consider your sin. Next week we're going to be talking about that a a lot. Um, Temptation. And then finally, uh, consider the cross of Christ. John Owen said, Fill your affection with the cross of Christ, that there will be no room for sin. Every time we look at the cross of Christ, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. It is here at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our our true size. And finally, in the evening, a lot of times we get to bed late and we're just zonked out. Transfer the glory to God. Like, think about your day. Sometimes I'll lay in bed and I'll just kind of like think back about my day. But instead of just thinking back in your day, begin to give God the glory for the things that he let you accomplish throughout the day. That test score, the play you made, the conversation you had, that you didn't get in that accident, whatever it is. Begin to transfer that glory, not to me, Lord, not to us, but to God. That's a good practice to get into. Reflect on the day um, in praise to God or in repentance. Man, Lord, I, I screwed up today. I 
can't, that it is on my mind. Lord, I need you. Please, tomorrow, protect me. And when you wake up in the next morning, same thing. Lord, I need you today. Um, we're going we're gonna to continue singing a little bit, if the guys could come up. Uh, and then afterwards, a couple more closing thoughts, and we'll be done.